Stand clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, you never know what could be lurking around the corner. Fantasy, horror, sci-fi, or the just plain weird. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbaum, Professor Emeritus Calliope DeGamowitz, and Inquisitor James Earl King II as they discover the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Campus doesn't look right. Did someone clean? It's awfully shiny around here. Worse, I hope you brought sunglasses. Good gods, what are those? Vampires of the sparkly teenage variety. Don't worry though, they only hurt you if you ask them to cheer up. Oh, it's the sparkle apocalypse. I can't see. I'm so moody. Shut up. The Oversheen's doing, and apparently it has no taste. It's turned everyone into... I'm so sad. These creatures. That sounds like a klezmer band being fed to a whale with digestive issues. Yes, sing, my employees, sing. I hope you like my chorus. I took the opportunity to change a few things. My new mermaid staff is so much more obedient. Listen, you bilious bucket of bolts. Turn that noise down before we put sugar in your gas tank. You have no power here. We've got a way to pull your plug. You think so, do you? Yes, you executive dumpster. We've got a challenge you can't refuse. You couldn't possibly mean... Yes. We challenge you to... Peer Review by Combat! The Right to Bear Arms by Zach ZYZ I think he stole the election, and he's been an absolute disaster for this country. I mean, look at me. Somehow, I'd started talking politics, as if it was the old times and you could just do that, strike up a conversation with someone, and say what you think. I held up the two prosthetic arms I'd come to have adjusted. They were good arms when they worked, made of lightweight composites, sturdy and powerful, and most importantly, they felt real. But they weren't working now. The pinky finger on the right arm kept extending when I closed the fist, and from time to time, the whole arm would spasm with a clacking jolt that startled people. Most were too polite to mention it, but I'd come to dread that uncomfortable moment where they didn't know what to say. The technician gave me an odd look. With my pinky extended, I must have looked like I was putting on airs. I absolutely wasn't. 
I was about half a disability check away from holding a cardboard sign on 8th Avenue that said, Veteran, please help. I almost said so, but the tech extended the arms on his examination table and had me lie on my back while he restrained both of my prosthetics. I stared up at the ceiling, comfortably crucified. I bit my lip, telling myself to shut up. If I went too far and said too much, the technician might ask me to leave. Dr. Ludo's office was my last chance, and if this didn't work out, I was almost certainly going to be on the street in a month's time. I'd be in good company. I heard on the news that if they took all the homeless vets in Manhattan and armed them, you would have an entire division. It was always looming at the edge of my thoughts, with every day where nobody called me back for an interview, where 20 more resumes went unanswered. I was going to run out of money and get evicted. I'd take my place among the lost, holding a sign, sleeping in the subway. It was inescapable. I tried to help a few of them out while I still could. A cup of coffee, a bagel. Most wouldn't take money from me. Once, a wild old man with a crazy beard and eye patch told me to cut it out, saying I'd already given enough. He wore a dinky little plastic sword at his belt and a handkerchief over his head. I guess he was supposed to be a pirate. I could tell he'd been at least a staff sergeant, from the way that he stood, the way that he spoke. But there he was, on the corner of 6th Avenue and 23rd Street, with his sign that said, Homeless Vet, Four Tours, Please Help, God Bless. All the pride drained out of him as he turned back to the street, giving people a big goofy smile, waving to the little kids. The sudden stiffness of his posture, the command in his tone, it was something that he saved just for himself, just for us, the broken soldiers. Sam, the technician working on my arm, grunted unhappily, knocking me out of the memory. He was an older guy with deep lines on his face. He had long, straight black hair parted down the middle with streaks of silver in it. It's bad, huh? I said, and he didn't answer, and I got twice as nervous. I hadn't slept much before the appointment. I had been terrified of exactly this. The VA won't fix it, I complained. Says they're booked until next year. They put me in a lottery. A goddamn lottery to get working arms. You remember before the election? Oh yeah. Who's going to fix the VA? It's going to take care of us. The way that he talked about how he loved the vets, just loved them so much that he was practically in tears. Loved us so much that he wanted more of us, hundreds of thousands more. Wanted a guy missing an arm or a leg on every street corner so he could see one of us wherever he went. Sam stopped working and looked at me, and I knew I ought to shut up. I knew that I'd gone too far already. I was going to get myself thrown right out of the office, but I couldn't stop talking. I'd been bottling it all in for months. He sure as fuck didn't love paying for us. I had to get a private grant to get these in the first place, chip in my own money, my entire severance bonus. I would be trying to wipe my ass with a broomstick taped to a nub if I'd waited for the VA to help me. And they told us New York was the best place for us, that they had the infrastructure to deal. Well, it's a goddamn lie, and it's almost winter. Soldiers are going to be freezing to death in the street. I don't know if they'll even pay to bury them. They might just dump us all in the landfill. I mean, if they won't keep their promises while we're alive, why would they care after we're gone? And now they want another war that we can't afford? I mean, really, when are people going to come to their fucking senses? I had raised my voice, and I was breathing heavily. The bad pinky was flipping out, flopping around like a caught fish. The technician had an inscrutable look on his face, and he waited for me to calm down. I kept expecting him to ask me to leave, but he only stared. Sorry, I'm, I'm mad and I, I get carried away. I'm sure you hear it all the time. I hear far too much of it. Would you stop it if you could? Sam the technician asked. Stop it? What do you mean? 
I mean, suppose there was a way to stop the next war. What would it be worth to do that? Sam asked. For a second, I wondered if he was just having a laugh at me for being so serious. It was weird to be put on the spot like that while you were clamped to a table. But I was nervous and keyed up, and I just blurted out an answer. Any price, absolutely anything, I'd die to stop it. Sam nodded, and he was looking at me very carefully. I realized I'd gone too far again and wondered if everybody in the office had heard my little tantrum. It was a small, tasteful place in an expensive building on 59th Street. Very high-end. Everything was clean and new. It had been daunting to enter, and I felt like I couldn't even afford to ride the elevator here. Fortunately, there were no other patients. That was really surprising. There were ads all over the subway for Dr. Ludo, promising free prosthetic adjustments and grant consultations for veterans. There was a big purple heart on the ad, and in the picture, Dr. Ludo was shaking hands with a Marine wearing a prosthetic arm. That Marine had the same model arm as me, the Carbon Composite Patriot Systems 10DE. It seemed too good to be true. Readjusting an NPA prosthesis took a lot of time and special equipment. I'd looked into getting it done privately and had been quoted over $5,000 just for an adjustment. Neural pathway actuated prosthetics are an amazing technology, but it's new and they need to be tuned from time to time. And more often than the five months, the VA wanted me to wait. It wasn't just the pinky sticking out either. The right hand was dropping things, going slack at the worst possible times. Worse was that it would glitch out completely when I tried to play piano. The VA doctor had made some hopeful noises about me being able to play again. The left hand was amazing. It worked better than my real hand ever had. The prosthesis had a direct connection to my brain, and it responded faster than any other part of my body, felt more keenly, acted more precisely. And it was strong, though of course I didn't go around crushing rocks or breaking planks. The prosthetics were far too important and expensive to risk damaging. There were a lot of neat tricks my new arms could do. I could pick something up and know exactly what it weighed down to the microgram. I could touch something and know its exact temperature. I could play a theremin and actually feel the radio waves. I had such high hopes, but there was no way that I could play on the right hand. I could barely even write with it, and it never really worked correctly. VA had told me it would get better with time, but it got worse instead. Sam kept working over the arm, running it through the paces and going through the logs. He ran a series of tests where I had to flex each finger a dozen times, run through the full range of motion, and then he would check the diagnostic machine and make notes in a file. He was paying close attention to each malfunction, jotting it all down. They hadn't paid attention like this when they did the initial installation, and maybe that was part of the problem. Sam had gone quiet as he worked, leaving me to wonder what the hell he'd meant. He had bushy eyebrows and long, delicate fingers that I envied for a furious moment. He reminded me a lot of an old Navajo guy that used to tune my piano when I was stationed at Goodfellow Air Force Base. They both had the same kind of exacting patience and excruciating focus. They even looked a little bit alike. It made me feel comfortable. For the first time in several weeks, I felt really well looked after and even a little hopeful. Happy, even. But I wasn't so happy to hear the news he had for me. Okay, are you ready for this? The right arm is going to have to come off and be overhauled. We're going to need to redo the connection. I had to close my eyes and swallow hard. An NPA prosthesis wasn't something you just took off and threw in the corner of your room at the end of the night. What he'd actually told me was, we need to cut your arm off piece by piece over two months and then do surgery to put it back on. 
I was going to have to deal with it all over again. The weird phantom pain and prosthesis dissonance. It has to be removal, I asked. If you ever want it working correctly, yes. The left arm just needs tuning. The connection is good. I can have your left working 100% by the time you leave today. But the right prosthetic. The installation was botched. The majority of the connections need to be completely redone, and the arm needs to be taken offline. I'm going to have to replace some parts that have burned out. Until I have it off, there's no way for me to tell if the prosthetic was damaged due to the faulty installation or if they fitted you with a defective unit, though my gut says the former. Never seen a bad 10DE. We'll have to reprogram the whole thing. We can't do it clean either, the way this thing has been wired. We have to remove and preserve each cluster. My world sank. I'd suspected it all along, of course. The fucking VA. I can't afford to have it redone. I couldn't even afford to get it tuned, I said. We can perform the amputation and reattachment right here. There's no charge, Sam said. But wait, how? This office is privately funded. You can talk with Dr. Ludo about it. I'm going to give him my findings, and then he'll speak with you. There's got to be some catch, right? You're talking about a payment plan, filing a grant, something, right? None of that. The office will pay for everything. Dr. Ludo can explain more. I was about to cry right in front of him. I managed to hold it back until he left the room. Learning that the arm would have to come off, and then hearing that they would pay for it, it was too much. I started crying, and I was still snuffling a little when the doctor came in. Dr. Ludo was um, intense, almost seems too kind of a word. He was one of those tall, thin men who never smiled. He didn't blink much, and he didn't make small talk. He brushed away my questions about payment in about two sentences. The office was privately funded by an endowment. They weren't a non-profit either, so they weren't tied up in a bunch of regulations. They could just fix people. Once I was assured that they weren't going to come after me for my soul or my firstborn, Dr. Ludo began to give me instructions for the pre-amputation preparations. There was a stringent diet and exercise regimen I needed to follow, and he printed it out and went over it with me step by step. Then he did it again. Finally, he took the paper away from me and quizzed me on each step to make sure that I have it all. I must have given him a look, uh, because he stopped cold and stared. It is imperative that you comply fully with this rehabilitation process if you want to achieve full functionality of this arm. The VA messed this one up pretty badly, and there's absolutely no wiggle room on this reinstall. Everything needs to go right, and that means I need you to do everything you can on your end. Copy? Copy, I said. He said it like an officer. If he hadn't served himself, Dr. Ludo had certainly seen his share of soldiers. He knew how to put a little righteous fear behind his orders. Where'd you go to school? he asked. Auburn. Good school. Why'd you enlist, then? he asked, in the same tone he might have asked why I shot myself in the foot. I couldn't really argue the point with both of my arms blowed off. I got divorced. My wife and I co-owned a business. Uh, I just wanted to start over. Well, do you regret it? <laughs> Every day. A lot more men are going to wind up like you if our glorious leader gets re-elected. He seems dead set on another war. I raised an eyebrow at his tone, and our eyes met. We both said some dangerous things today. Well, let him go and fight him. I couldn't keep the bitterness out of my voice. But surprisingly, Dr. Ludo smiled at that. Or maybe he was grimacing. He seemed like he didn't have a lot of practice smiling. 
I'm going to be working closely with you for the next few weeks. Sam tells me that you used to play piano. Use that. I can't promise you anything. There's always the chance of unforeseen complications. But if you follow the plan to the letter, Sam and I will do everything in our power to get you playing again. It'd help a lot, Doc. Thanks. I need something. Something to help me keep it together. We'll see, Dr. Ludo said. I went home happier than a man who was about to lose an arm had any right to be. sitting in the waiting room when I heard Sam the technician shout. I guessed right that he was Navajo on my second visit, but he didn't know my former piano tuner. He'd actually been a veterinarian before his business failed, and he went back to school for prosthetic medicine. Very prescient of him, given the current administration. There was a patient ahead of me today, even though my appointment was for half an hour ago. Sam was in the adjustment room with him now. The receptionist had apologized profusely for me having to wait, saying it was an emergency visit, but I didn't mind. I smiled at him and told him it was fine. Where did I have to go anyway? He was really cute, way out of my league. After the shouting, I could hear Sam apologizing through the door. Dr. Ludo came flying out of his office and into the diagnosis room, and then Sam was explaining. Those fucking fools, Dr. Ludo roared after a few minutes of Sam talking. Dr. Ludo was livid. It put me on edge, and at the same time, I was glad it wasn't at me. Now I and the receptionist were looking at each other, and then staring at the door. From his expression, I could tell that this was new and frightening to him, too. Dr. Ludo threw the door open. Call an ambulance, Dr. Ludo ordered. His face was blood-red with fury. I can't pay. I I I'll walk there, offered a voice that was distantly familiar. We'll pay for everything. Your implant was installed incorrectly. A piece of it became detached, and you need immediate surgery to remove it. Your life is in danger due to the infection, but you will be okay. Once you recover, we will replace it. How many days ago did they install this? I hit the VA lottery. They put it in yesterday. I, I felt okay. I asked them if I could leave. I don't want to lose my corner, the old voice said. They shouldn't have released you. Ocular implants require a minimum of three days of bed rest and observation, and a patient your age should have had at least a week to recover. It's my fault. I asked them to let me go, the old man said. Even through the wall, I could hear the pain in his voice. I went back today to have them look at it again, but they were too busy. This is not your fault. You are the victim of malpractice. We're going to get you the care that you need. Is the ambulance on its way, Laren? It is, Laren said. Laren is going to accompany you to the hospital. He'll help you with admission and set up billing directly to our office. 
It's going to be just a few minutes while we get our report together so they know exactly what went wrong and they can begin treating you immediately. You're going to be okay, Mr. Blanchard. When they finished with his file and printed it out, they led Mr. Blanchard out of the diagnosis room. Blanchard was having a little bit of trouble walking. It looked like his balance was off. He had a brand new eye installed, but the skin all around it was puffed out and discolored. I recognized him at once. He was the one-eyed pirate from Sixth Avenue who told me I'd given enough already. He looked a little small and sad without the wild beard. I guess the VA trimmed it off when they installed his eye. I don't think he recognized me. He was in rough shape. The receptionist led the one-eyed man out the door gently. If not for the gravity of the situation, I might have been a little envious. Laren was so soft-spoken and kind, the kind of beautiful that makes you feel ugly. It was kind of cruel for them to have someone so perfect as a receptionist in an office meant to help people missing parts of themselves. I guess most patients wouldn't mind. Unbelievable, Dr. Ludo said when they were gone. His hands were clenched into fists at his sides. Did you hear how he was afraid to go to the hospital? Why did they release him? What the fuck were they thinking? He panhandles on 6th Avenue. I think he was afraid if he was away for too long, someone else would take his place, I offered. Do you know him? Dr. Ludo asked. No, I said, and then I recounted the story of how I'd met Blanchard. Sam and Dr. Ludo just looked so angry, I thought they were going to send me away. This is what they do. They use people up, and they throw them away when they break them. I wouldn't trust those VA incompetents to hold a bedpan. There used to be doctors there before the cuts. Yeah, they were overworked, but they did what they could. Now it's the absolute bottom of the barrel. Just the hacks who can't get anything else, Dr. Ludo said bitterly. I am going to do something about it. Believe me. Well, what? I asked. And both Sam and Dr. Ludo looked at me for a long moment until I felt uncomfortable. Let's see how your arm is doing. How's the pain? Dr. Ludo asked, changing the subject. Pretty bad, I admitted. It took two agonizing months to get my arm cut off. Every visit, I lost a little more functionality as they isolated and preserved the nerve interfaces. It was all done with microsurgical probes. Dr. Ludo was the controller. The NPA tech was amazing, but it was delicate, and it was hard to undo the botched installation without losing major functionality. There were two shots that I would get every session. One knocked me out completely. I would feel the needle, and then the piercing feeling would grow further and further away, and the cold would rush in. I felt for a brief time like I was a million miles away, and then all was blackness until the next shot came. That one knocked me right out of outer space, but it didn't leave me feeling exhausted like the other times I'd been tranquilized. It left me chatty and energetic, as if I'd just had two big cups of coffee. I found myself looking forward to the drugs, a lot more than I ought to, especially the sedative. The feeling of traveling so far into the darkness that you were light years away from all the pain and all concern. I wanted it in a way that frightened me. Sam told me that this was a new sedative called cryosome. It had been developed for spaceflight. Apparently, if you didn't apply the counteragent, you could keep somebody under with it almost indefinitely. They were going to use it to send astronauts to Mars. I thought about that a great deal as I was going through the afterpain. They weren't real nerves that they were disabling, but my brain didn't understand that. It complained bitterly that parts of me were missing. 
The phantom pain was not like banging my toe or touching a hot pan. It didn't arrest me. It just lay at the back of my mind and throbbed that something was wrong. During the day, when I was moving around and doing things, I could push it away. But as I tried to sleep, the pain seemed to stack on top of itself, like overlapping waves magnifying one another. I had one bad episode where I panicked in the middle of the night, terrified that there was an inert hunk of metal and plastic where my arm should be. I wanted to just rip the prosthetic off, and I was so agitated that I had to take a Klonopin to calm down. That was one thing that the VA was generous with. Tranquilizers. Drugs were cheap. I'd been pretty good about not dipping into them when I didn't have to. The bottle was still half full. I'd gotten it about six months ago when I returned home as a casualty. When I took the pill, all I could think about was how weak it was compared to the cryosome and how long it took to kick in. I actually found myself salivating when I thought about the needle. Fortunately, the sedative kicked in and uh, it knocked me out before I could do anything stupid. I told Dr. Ludo about the episode the next day half hoping he would prescribe the cryosome, but he just said that we were going too fast and needed to pace how many clusters we did a day. I tried not to show how disappointed I was, but I think he knew. Waiting for my appointments, I saw a few other vets at the office, but not as many as there should have been for such a first-rate office where they paid for everything. It should have been packed to the rafters. A friend of mine who'd gone through basic with me had chatted some complaints about the MPA foot he'd gotten from the VA. He could barely hobble with it. I told him about Dr. Ludo, and he came in from New Jersey for a consultation. Sure enough, he needed a removal and a reinstall. Another VA special. But Dr. Ludo didn't take my friend as a patient. He did the consultation and referred him to another doctor way out on Long Island, still offering to pay for the whole thing. The friend sent me an effusive thank you, but I wondered why he hadn't been seen at the same office as me. Their schedule was nowhere near full. I was coming in for appointments every day, and the place was a ghost town. The first week, there was no one there at all. Blanchard, the guy with the bad eye, returned after about two weeks once he'd recovered from his infection. If I got in early for my appointment, I would see Blanchard as he was leaving for his, and I was always early. I figured ten minutes early wasn't too weird, and it was ten extra minutes to be in the same room as Laren. I hoped I wasn't too obvious. I didn't want to make him uncomfortable. I would just bury my nose in a magazine and not read a word sneaking glances at him until it was time for my appointment. Blanchard had been lucky. He'd fought off the infection, and they'd done an emergency removal of the prosthetic eye. Now they were preparing him for the replacement. He would never have full vision in that eye, but Dr. Ludo hoped that they could at least get him some meaningful depth perception. I usually chatted with Blanchard for a few minutes while Sam was setting up the technical room for me. He was doing a lot better. Laren had helped him get into temporary housing, and I think they sorted out whatever was keeping him from getting his disability payouts. I never saw him standing on the corner of 23rd again. He'd filled out a little and seemed to be eating well. His beard was coming back in patchy, but he seemed happy. Once, I heard Blanchard laughing with Sam in the adjustment room. His laugh was big and booming, and I couldn't help but grin. Laren saw me and shared the smile. I thought my heart was about to pop, but I didn't dare try anything, of course. He was just so perfect, and I wasn't going to do anything to jeopardize my treatment. My greatest fear was that I would somehow screw things up, say the wrong thing, and they put me out on my ass with half my arm cut off. It all still seemed too good to be true. Other than Blanchard on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and a few guys who came in and got consultations but were not treated, there was only one other regular patient I saw, a Navy guy who was pretty far gone. 
He had extensive burn scars covering most of his face and neck. He had a full leg and arm prosthesis on his left side, and they had him on some pretty heavy-duty meds. He couldn't manage much more than a few pleasantries. I remarked on the Navy guy to Sam as he was doing the monthly adjustment on my right arm, and he told me the guy was Captain Blue Morley. I knew the name. He had been all over the news a few months back. In the middle of a battle, he jumped into a burning boat full of refugees and pulled five people literally out of the fire. Two of them were kids. All five of them lived. Blue suffered burns over 75% of his body. It was a minor miracle he'd survived. There was some talk that he might be awarded the Medal of Honor. And yet here he was. For all his heroism, they'd fucked up his prosthetics the same as the rest of us. I tried to always make sure to say good afternoon to him. He started coming in after me the second week on Wednesdays and Thursdays. The rest of the time, it was just me. After I lost functionality in the arm, I just felt more and more useless. I kept filling out job applications and dropping off resumes, but I hadn't gotten a single reply so far. Maybe they could smell the desperation in my cover letters, and maybe there just weren't any jobs. You weren't supposed to be able to discriminate against the handicapped or veterans. Still, I got nothing but radio silence on the job front. I filled out a profile on a dating site about five different ways and finally deleted it all. I told myself my luck would change when they fixed the arm. I spent the rest of my time either doing the exercises or just walking around the city and thinking. It was free, and my legs still worked. I read a lot. There was just so much time to kill, and it didn't die easy. When I'd been deployed, I had dreamed about this, lusted after a single day just to do what I wanted without somebody ordering me around. But now I had a lifetime of empty days in front of me with nothing to fill them. I didn't want to do anything. Nights were the worst. The pain kept me awake. Dr. Ludo was not big on prescribing pain meds. He seemed very cautious around them. I guess he lost a lot of guys that way. It was smart of him, because given the opportunity to just end it that way, I can't say for sure that I wouldn't have. I thought about ending it pretty frequently while they were doing the removal. I didn't have much going on. No family, nor friends. The weather was turning dark, and so was I. I often wished I'd died in the attack and saved everybody the trouble of having to deal with me. A couple of nights, I walked over the Williamsburg Bridge and stared down into the river. I was never the only one. Every time I walked out there, I saw others like me, gazing into the abyss. I never saw anybody jump, and I didn't bother the people sizing up the jump. We all had to make our own choice. I guess the main thing that kept me from doing it was not wanting to let all the people at Dr. Ludo's office down. They really were doing a ton of hard work, and I didn't want it to all go to waste. I wished I could afford a dog or a cat, but there was just no way. I was losing money. I got in the cheapest place in Harlem that I could, but I was slowly sinking. I had a crazy idea that if I could just get my hands up and running again, I might play piano in the subway for a living. I could just lug my keyboard and amplifier down to West Forth every day and play for tips. It was stupid, but it was all that I had to look forward to. Another thing that had kept me alive, Dr. Ludo had noticed that I was down. He began bringing me into his office in the loquacious recovery period where the antichryosome had me all keyed up. He and I would talk, sometimes for up to an hour. It saved me. It was incredibly therapeutic just to have somebody to talk to. My VA-appointed therapist had called in sick to three appointments in a row, and finally I just stopped going. 
He'd been kind of a twerp anyway, fresh out of college and trying way too hard. At first, Dr. Ludo had asked me about my search for work, how my friends and family were doing. He quickly realized that I had nothing and it was bumming me out, so we began to just talk politics. I could rattle on about that forever, and there was literally nowhere else to do it. You couldn't strike up a conversation in a bar, because you never knew who was listening. You couldn't talk online either, because you knew they definitely were listening. Everyone kept their opinion to themselves, and it just cooked inside of them until it was hot as magma, ready to erupt at any time. Dr. Ludo was keeping a pretty close watch on me. Of course, I was watching him back. He was a very interesting person. Definitely not my type, but it was hard not to be a little smitten at somebody who was so focused on healing people. I'd noticed that he seemed a lot more stressed as the treatment went on, though everything seemed to be progressing well. He had one of those old-style mechanical keyboards, and I could hear him cranking away on it while Sam worked on me sometimes, even through the wall separating the two rooms. There would be a flurry of keystrokes, then a wait, and then another roar of clacking keys. I wasn't sure if he was writing some tortured manifesto or in a heated conversation with someone, but I could hear the agitation. It's the kind of thing a piano player picks up on. He certainly wasn't getting enough sleep. We talked a lot about what was going on in the world. He would mention something in the news and ask me what I thought about it. Then he would listen to what I had to say and nod. He never agreed with me or disagreed. He just wanted to know what I thought. At first, I was careful, but as I got more comfortable with him, I said a few things that I really shouldn't have. The recovery agent made me chatty, like I was somehow simultaneously drunk and clear-headed. It was a dangerous time to be against the government. People who were too free with their opinions were prone to vanish. You never heard from them again. I had a little protection from that as a disabled vet. Nowadays, we were the only people who could be openly critical of the party. If you were missing an arm or a leg, you had a little bit more leeway to complain. Not too much, of course, just a little more than everyone else. We'd become jesters. You didn't want to be quoted anywhere, though. They wouldn't disappear you for the small stuff, but your benefits would dry up pretty quick. My treatment progressed and became a routine of gazing dreamily at Laren, getting adjusted by Sam, getting knocked out and brought back to life, and then blathering at Dr. Ludo until it was time to go home. The pain either lessened or I grew used to it, and I was sleeping through the night. The night before my last treatment, I took my keyboard out of its storage case and cleaned it until the keys were absolutely sparkling. It was nothing fancy, but it had hammer-weighted keys, and it felt reasonably close to a real piano. The perfect thing for someone playing with something reasonably close to hands, leading a reasonable approximation of a life. Tune in January 1st, 2019, for the conclusion of The Right to Bear Arms. Zach Zawizi is a writer based in New York City. His books, including Survival Mode, Zan and Ink, The Master Arcanist, The Bishop's Daughter, and Hawks at the Diner, are available to download for free at his website, ZachZYZ.com as is the right to bear arms. If you enjoyed his writing, please consider supporting him at his Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash ZachZYZ.
This episode of the Kaleidocast Season 2 was brought to you by our Kickstarter backers, Ted Mendelson, Sarah Smith, and Anthony J. Wu at Yahoo.com. Thank you for listening to the Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Your hosts are Marcy Arlen as Clyde P. DeGamowitz, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Your editors and producers are Marcy Arlen, who's also our director, Bradley Robert Parks, Jessica Plumley, who provides additional vocals, Cameron Roberson, managing editor, and Sam Schreiber, our story runner. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Our intro was produced by sound engineer Matt Mozzarella. Additional audio engineering was provided by Atticus Ryan Garten. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. See our website for a full list of sounds from each episode. Special thanks go out to Marcus Song, Daniel Stalter, Margot Atwell at Kickstarter, C.S.E. Cooney, Carlos Hernandez, Fran Wilde, and Cat Valente. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes or go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and to find links to all our contributors. <laughs>